When I was in the fifth grade, my family moved to the other side of town. I was the new kid in school. Now you had to understand, in the school that I had been going to, I was the man at my elementary school, all three foot of me. I was the guy. And so now I moved and I didn't, I didn't know anybody. I was absolutely clueless. And in my new school, they had a game that they would play almost every recess in the fall, and it was called King of the Mountain. Anybody ever play King of the Mountain? Oh yeah, we got some kingers here. I never seen this game before. I quickly fell in love with this game. And basically is you would all start at the bottom of the hill, somebody would say go, usually the man, he would say go, everybody run up the hill. And then it would just be this free-for-all of 5th and 6th grade boys out at recess, throwing one another down the hill, kicking one another down the hill, punching one another down the hill, any way you could intimidate somebody to leave the top of the hill. And the last man standing was king of the hill. Anybody want to play? No, I have not. Dude, you should have seen it yesterday. Because you know what king of the hill does? King of the hill defines who's the man. It really does. In fifth and sixth grade elementary at Fairbrook Elementary School in Beaver Creek, Ohio, I mean, that, that defined who was the man. Yesterday we had just a stage full and a church full of lifters coming together, raising money to help families in our community who have children with life-threatening issues. And, and so they came together, and it was easy to see who was the man in the late lifting world. Because whenever they would come up to lift, uh, guys would pop their heads in the doors, either the back or the front. They'd kind of move up a little closer to see what was going on because everybody kind of wants to know who the man is. Well, whether you're at a weightlifting event or whether you're in fifth and sixth grade, it, it doesn't take long to figure out who the man is. And there are times when you and I need to know who the man is who's truly king of the mountain. There's a brilliant guy by the name of John. John writes five books in the New Testament. The final book that he wrote is the final book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. It means the apocalypse, the unveiling. It's pulling the curtain back and letting us see what's going on in heaven. And the main theme, or one of the main themes of the book of Revelation, is that things are not always as they seem. And on the tiny island of Patmos, he writes about, you know, at a time when there's a lot of confusion, when there's a lot of disarray, when there's a lot of tribulation, when there's a lot of persecution, when for the Christian community, everything seems to be falling apart, he writes to them just to reaffirm who the man is. He just wants to reaffirm who's the king of the mountain. Matter of fact, if you just kind of turn to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and leave it there for just a moment, we'll walk through it. John is trying to encourage folks to understand who really is the true king of the mountain because on the world at that time, it would appear that Rome is the king of the mountain. It would appear that Rome and the emperor of Rome, in this case, Domitian, it was the king of the hill. And everything seems to be crumbling for the Christians, the religion of the day was in Rome was emperor worship, and all the subjects of Rome had to pay homage, had to bow before the Roman emperor. They all had to say, 
Kyrios Caesar, which means Caesar is Lord. And if they didn't, they would come under severe persecution economically and many times physically as well. The church was being oppressed and persecuted by all of the Caesars since Nero. Add to that, and Nero dipped the Christians in wax and burned them as streetlights along the main streets of Rome. And now you have this maniacal, narcissistic emperor named Domitian in 96, 95, 96 AD. And he is wreaking havoc on the Christian community. Ten out of the twelve apostles have been martyred for their faith. A lot of the bishops and pastors of the early churches established all over the Middle East and throughout Asia Minor have been persecuted, in jail, banished, or killed for their faith. And so now you have this young, fledgling group of baby Christians wondering who's in charge here. It just felt like everything was just out of their control. And I think they really wanted to know who the man is. Who's the king of the mountain around here? And it could be that you're confused about who the man is. Who's the king of your mountain? Because you are, because your life is just all messed up. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're defeated. Maybe you're dis, dis, uh, enfranchised. Maybe you're disillusioned. And you're wondering, who's the king of your mountain? I mean, like, who's really in charge? What's going on? Why can't I do anything about it? You look to the future with anxiety and, and fear, and you wonder who's the man. You, your faith is weak or non-existent. You doubt more than ever. You doubt far more than you believe, and you struggle with the question of, God, are you really in control of things? Because sometimes we look around and it looks like evil is winning. God, are you really in control? Sometimes we look around and it looks like there's no hope. God, are you really in control? Are you really the man? Are you really king in a mountain? And if that's where you're at, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 was written especially for you. Because I want you to look. Look at verse 1. I want you to see what John sees. I want you to experience what John sees in this vision. It's, it's not a dream. I, somehow I think he's, he's in this kind of panoramic kind of center of his dream. And he has all of the abilities to see and sense and smell and touch. And these chapters, chapters 4 and 5, listen to me. These chapters, chapter 4 and 5, along with verse 1, give you the key to understanding the book of the Revelation. Now, I know everybody wants to know about the Mark of the Beast and Antichrist and Armageddon and all of that stuff. I'm telling you, that is like 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 120th down the list of the important things in the book of Revelation. If you want to know what's truly important in Revelation, if you want Revelation in about 24, 26 verses, it's seen here in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Look at verse 1. He says, then I looked, and as I looked, he said, I saw, and I is John, the apostle. He said, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And thank God that door is still open today. Not for you to see into it in a visionary way, but to, for you to experience it spiritually. When I was a kid, we used to sing this old song, Raise Your Hand, if you know it. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. 
da 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 Isn't that a great song? Four of us know it. That's awesome. We could do a quartet. But there's a door standing open to heaven. And what I love about that picture is it simply tells us that the door and the opportunity to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is not closed yet. The opportunity to have a personal relationship with the God and creator of this world is not shut yet. John sees the door and then he hears a voice the same voice in chapter 1 and verse 10. He said, and I heard before me like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, come on up here. And I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit. And I saw the throne of heaven and someone sitting on it. So all of a sudden, John is just kind of taken to a spot and a place he's never been to. And automatically, and what transpires in chapter 4 is John is just enraptured by the throne and the person that sits on it. It captivates his attention. It just illuminates his imagination. It is all he could write about in chapter 4. He said, he looks at the one sitting on the throne and he sees the throne. By the way, the word throne is an important word for John. It's used six times in chapter 4, over 40 times in the entire book of Revelation. And always, in every context in the book of Revelation, it means power and authority. Power and authority. Heaven's throne of jasper, ruby, and rainbow was in stark contrast to the Greece and Roman temples made out of marble and sandstone. And John in his day had probably seen some wonderful sights in Ephesus and in Laodicea and probably Colossae as well and other areas there in that, in that geographical area of Asia Minor. But everything that he saw here just paled in comparison. I mean, how would you describe what heaven is when... The only thing you've ever been in is marble buildings and limestone buildings. I often try to picture what heaven's, <coughs> excuse me, going to be like, just the change in our level of understanding. Suppose we were to take a child from a third world country who gets one piece of bread and a glass of water two times a day. And all of a sudden, we take him and drop him into our brand new Myers store in Flat Rock. And, and we just drop him in with the cookie and cracker section. He's not going to know what that is. So we go over to the meat department. Probably not going to know what that is either. Take him to the, to the fruit area. There's going to be more fruit in that one small area than he's ever seen in his life. To explain to him that he can have his choice of turkey, ham, hamburger, bacon, smoked bacon, sausage, gravy eggs and biscuits and fried apples. Amen? <coughs> it would absolutely just blow him away. 
How do you explain a child who knows just bread and water two times a day that a place like the Myers store in Flat Rock, Michigan even exists? John is trying to let us know that, man, there is this place called heaven, <coughs> and it exists, and it is far beyond anything you could ever imagine. He said, matter of fact, it, it, it glistens like jasper and like rubies and there's this, this rainbow. And John uses the imagery of rainbow a lot in the book of Revelation. And, and it, it attests to the glory of God, it attests to the majesty of God, it attests to his authority over creation. But it also goes back to the, Noah, to the promise and the covenant that God made with Noah that he would never destroy the world again by water. And now there, he sits on the throne, the ultimate king of the mountain. And John's vision encourages us that no matter what is experienced on earth, God is truly in charge. Make no mistake about it, God is still on the throne. Now, let me just kind of tell you Trimble's view of election on Tuesday. Some of you go, are you worried about it? I'm worried about it from the Supreme Court justices' perspective and those judges, if they're elected or nominated and voted on by Congress, will be there for the next 30, 40 years. Am I worried whether it's Hillary or Donald or Donald or Hillary? No. Why? Because God is still on the throne. And election day, whether election day is in America or in England or in Moscow or in any other country of the world, it does not change the power, authority, dominion, and, and, and majesty of our God in heaven, who John says sits on this throne. So verse 4 tells us what's around the throne. Matter of fact, if, if you can see it, there's 24 thrones that surround him and 24 elders that sat on it. I'm just going to be honest. A lot of people debate what the 24 elders are. I, I really don't know who they are. Some people think they're a special order of angels. Some people believe they're representatives of believers of all generations. What I do know is that in the presence of God on the throne, here's what they do. They worship their response to being in the glorious presence of the king of the mountain. Their response to being in the presence of the Lord God Almighty is uninhibited, spontaneous, heartfelt, passionate worship to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They worship. Man, they sing. And man, when they sing, man, evidently nature moves. Look at verse 5. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. If you move forward to verse 6, you'll find that it says in verse 6, it says that in front of the throne were seven torches of burning flames and the sevenfold spirit of God. In other words, the church, we've already seen that in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, the, the, the lampstands, and then the sevenfold spirit of God is just the completeness of the Holy Spirit. They're all there in the presence of God bringing glory to his name. And in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal, and center around the throne were four living beings. We'll get to them in just a moment. This is absolutely incredible. What John is seeing in the center and around the throne are these four living creatures. Verses 6 through the end of this chapter take us to what these four living creatures are. These amazing creatures, most likely of an angelic order, 
that represent God's creation. And these magnificent creatures seem to have four heads, the, the face of a lion and the face of an uh, ox and the face of a man and the face of an eagle. How would you like to dress up like that for trick-or-treat? And here they are. And each of these living creatures, they had six wings and they were covered all over with eyes. Inside and out. This is very symbolic in apocalyptic language. It is just simply describing that these are great and mighty, powerful beings that hang around the sovereign throne of God Almighty. And they give him glory and praise forever and ever. The Bible will tell us, if you read through the rest of the chapter, that day and night they never stop praising God in heaven because they know that he's the king of the mountain. They know that he's the man. They know that he is who he says he is, the sovereign God of creation. Now, can we just kind of hit the pause button right here for just a second? A lot of us have a false assumption about worship. And our assumption is that worship starts when we come to church. And Don hits the first note, and we sing the first song. Oh, no, 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 no. When you come and I come to Kirby on Sunday morning, we are simply just having the privilege of being a part of an ongoing worship service that has started centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries, and centuries ago. Millennium and millennial ago. Because whether you are at Kirby Church or not, the four living creatures and the 24 elders praise the name of God. And whether you praise his name or not, the 24 elders and the, and the four living creatures, they honor his name and lift his name up. Why? Why? Because things are not as they seem. From earth looking around it looks like things are out of control in heaven looking around God is on the throne and he's in charge and everything is under his control no matter what happens he has all power over your circumstances no matter what you face he has all power over anything or circumstance in your life and no matter what you face or what obstacle is in your way he has the power to help you overcome it while on this level it may look like everything's out of control in heaven the four living creatures the 24 elders are praising his name because God is still on the throne and he reigns man if you're a first century Christian that would have made you shout Yes, God has not forgotten us. We've been seen through the open door in heaven. God is thrilled on the throne. And if Revelation chapter 4 was designed to give glory to God the creator, look at Revelation chapter 5. If Revelation chapter 4 was about a throne and the one that sits on it, Revelation chapter 5 is about a scroll and the one who was about to take hold of the scroll. Look at Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. That's the God of creation. Who was writing on the inside and outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. Now, this scroll was kind of like a last will and testament. 
It was the directives of the will and the will of somebody who wrote it out and then he sealed it with his own authority. So what I think this scroll represents is the redemptive purposes of, the, redemptive purposes of God, not only for creation, but for humanity to carry out God's redemptive plan and work throughout all of history. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy, who is worthy to break the seals of the scrolls and to open it. But no one in heaven and no one on earth stepped forward. And John began to cry. I wondered why John began to cry. Because if the Madai John wept because he knew the implications of an unopened scroll. It would mean that Jesus Christ's birth into this world did not matter. That his message would have been wasted. And his death, burial, and resurrection would have been meaningless. Jesus did not take the scroll. It would have meant that life would have had no true meaning and love and grace would have never been experienced by us. Faith and eternal life would have been impossible. And when John realized all of that, it moved him to tears. But then an elder told him not to weep because the Lion of Judah, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the world steps forward to take the scroll. And John turns, expecting to see the Lion of Judah. But look at what the scripture says. He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb slain. As it had been slaughtered and it was now standing between the throne and the four living creatures there in the top verse, verse 6. And it was now standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the 420 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes that represent the seven small fear to God. is just talking about the perfection of this Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he steps forward. And if you read the rest of the chapter, because he steps forward... Man, all of heaven breaks out in tremendous praise and worship. It's immediate. It's spontaneous. Heaven rejoiced and praised Jesus for his love and his mercy and his power and his majesty and his eternal life. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 says they sang a new song. They sang a new song. For some folks who don't like singing new songs, you like the golden oldies, I'm just telling you, here they sang a new song. And in chapter 4, they gave praise to God for his work of creation, but now in chapter 5, they sing praise to the Lamb that was slain for your sins and my sins for his work in redemption. In both cases and in both chapters, they sang, they worshipped Worthy are you. Uh, by the way, when they said you are worthy, it was required of every Roman citizen when the emperor would pass by to say you are worthy. Whether it was a grand parade or he was just trolloping up and down the street, 
You would have to say you are worthy. Even if he was a complete moron, you'd have to say you are worthy. But here in heaven, in chapter 4, it's praising the one who sat on the throne, God of creation, and they say you are worthy. And now it is the Lord of, of redemption, and they say you are worthy. And they sing. You're worthy to take the scroll to, to scroll to break it. You were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation, you have caused them to become a king of priests to our God. And they praised his name. If you go down further into the chapter, you notice that they bowed down. I did a little digging on cultures because I... I've traveled a good little bit, and uh, different cultures of the world do things a little differently. And, and there were two ways to kind of acknowledge or honor someone. And you've seen people do this, you know, or people will bow like this. But it just means I recognize you, I honor you, thank you for meeting me here today. It, it doesn't really go any deeper than an acquaintance level. It's just kind of a courtesy. It's kind of like saying, thank you, please, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, can I have more ice cream, please? It's just kind, of a, just kind of like courtesy. But the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they didn't just nod. The Bible says they bowed. In fact, the Bible says they got off of their thrones and they bowed before the Lord, the, crea the, the God of redemption. Now, when you bow in John's day, it was the ultimate sign of honor and respect where you realize and you're giving homage and acknowledging that the other person is greater than yourself. Remember when the Magi brought the gifts of gold, frankincense, and murdered Jesus? The Bible says they bowed down. Same word. That baby in Bethlehem, they acknowledged as something greater than themselves. That's why I love it when we have altar of prayer or altar worship or when you come and just worship around an altar of prayer because the posture of worship is bowing it's saying to God, I honor you, and, it's, and I ultimately express that you are far superior to me, and I bow down to worship you. We don't like that, do we? Because let's be honest, you and I like being the king of the hill. You and I like being the man. You and I like being in charge. You and I like sitting on the throne. And that's not the language of Revelation 4 and 5. Things are not as they seem. God is in control. So you see that our King Jesus is both lion and he's the lamb. Thus uniting the lion and the lamb is the basis of a wonderful story by C.S. Lewis. His book is called The Chronicles of Narnia. You may have seen the movie, and if you're ambitious enough, you may have even read the book. It is brilliant literature. 
If you don't know the movie or if you have not read the book, C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, he says this. The great lion Aslan rules in majesty and he roars in triumph. But he does so because he submits to being put to death by the evil characters controlled by the white witch. But at last the kingdom of Narnia is freed from his bondage to winter and the springtime of world arrives not because the lion roared but because the lamb gave his life. It's a wonderful picture. You and I have victory over sin not because the lion roars but because there's one that sits on the throne, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world for your sins and my sins. And it's having that personal relationship with Jesus Christ that gives us meaning and passion and power in life. And that's why we worship him. Yes, he's our lion and he defends us but oh, he's our lamb and he's our savior. And he comforts us. He encourages us. And he loves us and extends great and mercy to us. Yes, we worship him for his power. But if he was just an all-powerful being, he would be so unknowable and we would live in such fear of him. But he's the lamb, the lion and the lamb. And, his, and being the lamb, he took our sins, paid for them on the cross, shed his blood, settled the debt that you owe to God because of everything you've done wrong in life and screwed things up. And this lamb who loved you, this lamb who died for you, this lamb who desperately seeks to redeem you, is the same lamb that the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped and it is the same lamb and it is the same lion it is the same king of the mountain it is the same man the son of man Jesus Christ that you and I could stand and worship his name today would you stand to your feet with your heads bowed